Hey Julie. Hey Lisa. Why don't you tell everyone where we are right now? Well, I'm driving. Lisa's in the passenger seat navigating and we are just leaving WUSA 9, uh, Great Day Washington, where we had the opportunity to do a segment this morning on how running can combat cardiovascular health because February is Heart Health Month. Yeah, a lot of fun. We got to see some of our friends there. Uh, we've done segments on on Great Day Washington, WSA 9 before, so we're starting to know some of the faces there, and a lot of fun. It was really good. It was good. We had a little trouble getting here. We weren't paying attention. <laughs> we got a little rerouted, and then we were a little We were late. chatting away too much. We got late. What happens? But no one cared that we were late, and... Uh, we weren't late late. We were just yeah. later than we were We were still there before the show started. Yeah. So we were good. We were in time for our segment. So right. It's been one of those mornings, It though. was like a little Thelma and Louise. Yeah, it's just one of those morning. mornings where we just can't get our act together yeah so if anyone out there thinks that we always we were always on top of everything and super no. organized and have it all together no I also not this morning realized um when I got on air and this is still the case I forgot to put mascara on the other eye no let yeah. me see <laughs> sorry I didn't even notice so whatever well that's because you were putting mascara on while you were pumping gas <laughs> at the gas station because we didn't have enough gas to get down here. So again, it's been one of those mornings. We're like trying to multitask, do too many things. And it's, yeah. it, but it all ended up great. So it was it's all good. <laughs> but <laughs> one of those days. So we'll put this segment up on our website. It, it was live this morning, but we know most of our friends, if not all, are not tuning in to Great Day Washington at 9, 9 a.m. on a weekday. Yeah. So we'll put the segment up once they give it to us. So, um, yeah, so how how are you doing, Lisa? We just finished up a huge event on Sunday. How are you feeling? I, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling so energized from that and so um, you just reminded me. So we don't often take time to stop and look at what we've done and kind of look back from where we started and where we are now. We get so bogged down in the day-to-day -day of running a business and um, coaching our runners and being there for our runners that we don't often get a chance to step back and look and we got a chance to do that on Sunday and it was I, I was kind of humbled overwhelmed uh, it was so neat we had runners at our so we should say first of all we were limited in capacity at we Lululemon Gaithersburg was super generous and allowed us to use the store for our event but because of that we were limited to capacity seating capacity so we really could only limit the tickets to 60 which quote-unquote sold because we didn't sell them but booked out very quickly we were all those 60 tickets were taken within a couple hours of us posting that uh, Eventbrite link so we were limited in how many people could be there we wish everyone could have been there but we and then we had a wait list right so. we had a wait list we got to have a few people come in from the wait list uh, but we were limited but even in that limited cross-section we had runners who joined us 10 years ago who started running with us 10 years ago we had runners who've just started running with us we've had runners who started running with us went you know took a break and then came back. We had new runners. We have, you know, a new runner that we're just going to start coaching uh, now that came and got to meet us and hear our amazing speakers. We had a fabulous panel of Cindy Kuzma, Jen Lager, and Rachel Miller talking about rebounding and coming back from injury mentally and physically and how to do that successfully. And it was such a meaningful and informative panel I think everybody really took away even people who haven't or aren't currently injured or haven't been injured uh, people who have been injured really resonated with them gave us a lot of, of skills to take away and for us to use with our runners 
mental skills and and also on the physical side how to prevent and, and bounce back from injury so I thought it was amazing and we've said that those three ladies should take that show on the road and and we wish more people could hear what what they have to say it's, it was it was amazing one take there were so many takeaways but what we tried to do with this panel and Cindy of course was on our podcast she's the author of the book rebound and she brought her books and signed copies and that was really neat and she spoke and Jen Lager is a sports psychologist who was on our podcast last year. And Rachel Miller, of course, is our PT and just so knowledgeable about not just the physical aspect of injury, but the mental, because she's worked with so many patients over the years and really recognizes the importance of how mental strength plays into recovery. And the three of these women up there, everything they said applied not just to injury, but to obstacles and challenges and who hasn't had a sucky situation from which you have to overcome and there was one point where somebody asked the question um, what happens when it's permanent when you can't run anymore when your entire trajectory of what you thought your life was going to look like changes because the injury is permanent and or when you know you won't be able to come back to where you were before yes yeah and Rachel's answer was so great it was so on on the money because she said when someone's going through something hard to support them, you don't have to ask, how are you doing? Because chances are they're not doing great, but you can ask them, how are you managing? And and that's acknowledging by asking it that way that, hey, I know you're having a rough time. I know this isn't great. How are you managing? And it opens the door for more um, meaningful conversation where the person sort of sees that you get what they're going through. So I really like that. Yeah, and that applies, like you said, not only to runners who are going through injury and supporting those runners while they're injured, but anybody facing a, a challenging or difficult or, or challenging, challenging time. So that was uh, that was definitely one of the one of the takeaways. So uh, yeah, so it was a, a really great event and really a wonderful way to celebrate our ten years. Of, of coaching and I we also had an opportunity to talk briefly and we went through the 10 things that we've learned in our 10 years of coaching and I thought maybe we just go through go through some of those sure so you want to kick it off yeah so we went through 10 things and the, the thing we started out with was if you love what you do you'll never work a day in your life and it's so true we work really hard but we love this so much there's something so rewarding about being able to see people achieve goals that they thought were unattainable or achieve dreams that they thought initially were were silly and being able to support those goals and those dreams of, of people and, and see that we can all do extraordinary things when we work hard is, is so rewarding. So we started this gig out of the JCC 10 years ago. We had no idea that it would evolve into a business. And we've learned so much about running a running business over the years as a result. So it's not just about running. It's about learning to be flexible and, and understanding how to be creative, but work within your parameters and work together. And so communication. Yeah. So yeah. that's where all of these 10 things evolve from. So you go next, Lisa. Well, the second one we talked about was a little, a little off the beaten path or a little trivial, but 
equally important, we learned that um, I, the quote that I that I used was the trouble with weather forecasting is that it's right too often for us to ignore it and wrong too often for us to rely on it. Weather becomes a central part of a runner's life, looking at the weather, forecasting the weather. What's the weather going to be like for your training run? Should we uh, you know, move our training runs around to accommodate the weather? What is it going to be for a race day and we put so much stock in the weather forecast and we can often find ourselves obsessing over the weather forecast and searching for many different weather forecasts or maybe a different one that is more favorable to us but what we've learned throughout the years is that these weather forecasts you can't rely on them and you can't let it dictate your uh, your approach to either a race or to training. The conditions are what they are. Control the controllables. Uh, now, with the exception of ice, if there's ice outside, we obviously, what we're going to do then is go inside and not go outside in, in, in icy conditions. But uh, the example I gave was Parks Half Marathon. When we first started coaching, the first year we coached runners for Parks Half Marathon, the weather forecast was for pretty much torrential rain during the race and we had a few runners who decided woke up in the morning and decided a lot of runners actually in the race the race had you know a relatively high no-show uh, rate and a lot of runners woke up in the morning and said forget it I am not going out there and running in this rain uh, but the rain stopped right before the race started <laughs> and the race itself ended up being pretty favorable conditions and the runners who didn't run it said oh now that I saw it ended I wish I had gone and run the race and so you really just can't put a lot of stock into into the weather forecast and even when the weather forecast isn't in your favor it there's something to be gained by getting out there again as long as it's not icy or dangerous but getting out there and and getting over that fear so getting out and running in the really cold weather because you have the proper gear getting out and running in the rain because you're wearing a hat with a brim and you get home and you change right away feels really good to get that um, to, to accomplish that so that was the you know our, our, our second tip that we uh, that we gave and you know we talked briefly about communication being something we've learned throughout the 10 years. So you want to talk about our next tip? Yeah. So communication's key. Um, I think that one of the tenets of our successful partnership has been where we communicate well with each other. Um, and to that end, it, we, we feel one of our strengths has been being able to learn to effectively communicate also with our runners. And to do that, sometimes you have to step outside of email and text and pick up the phone or talk in person because nothing replaces face-to-face -face communication or phone-to-phone -phone communication. And sometimes we get lost in the text and the email and sometimes we can't convey things. And the biggest takeaway for me with respect to communication is that recognize that 99% of the time people are coming from a place of good. They're doing the best they can and often things are misconstrued or not intended to sound the way they sound. So in any situation, try to remember that when somebody says something or conveys something, it's it's from a, a place a good of place. good intention. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we rely so much on email and text and now we use final surge with our runners so there's a great way to communicate through that but it's all in writing so you don't get tone through writing you don't see an expression through writing so that's a really a really good point uh, and along those lines in terms of communication we talked about social media and social media has when we started our business social media consisted of basically Facebook and we put out Facebook posts and and really did grow our business a lot through through Facebook but we didn't have the the wide range of social media and really wasn't used to the extent it is now uh, in in communicating and uh, and 
really just part of our lives. And we talked about, um, you know, what we've learned over the years is there are two sides to social media. There's obviously the really beneficial side of creating community and, uh, and, and support. So, right. You know, which, which I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I just want to, when you said community, there was that article this weekend in the New York times yeah. by Lindsay Krauss about how she very much believes that she achieved a PR in her mid thirties, um, of a 2:52 marathon time at CIM as a result of the community that she relied on through Instagram. Right. She would wake up in the morning and think, Oh, do I want to go out for my run and look on Instagram and see, Hey, that woman who I know who has, you know, has to work this morning at seven o'clock in the morning and has three kids is already up and did her workout. That motivates me. I have no excuse. Get out. So that's a positive side of social media. We also talked about the potential negative effects of social media and comparison. And you always say comparison is the thief of joy. And that can happen too when you look in somebody's highlight reel and you see the runs that they hit or the paces that they hit and you're comparing or you're thinking, should I be doing that? So I think what we ended up deciding based on our experience is really you have to look at how do you feel when you are engaging in social media? Is it making you feel bad about yourself? Then get off of it. You don't, it's not a part of your life. You don't need that. Or limit it. Or limit it. Exactly. Right. Limited interactions. And it, does it make you feel good? Is it, is it enhancing your life? Is it helping? Then, then take advantage of it. Absolutely. And that goes for posting too. When you choose to post something about your running, think about, you know, why am I posting this? And is it, is it something that's going to benefit me or my community? So, um, yeah, social media is a big question mark for me on Sundays. I'm so grateful for it because it is how we are able to, um, share what we do with others. But on other days it exhausts me and I'm not sure, how I feel about it, um, especially because I have teenagers and I, in addition to my own social media consumption, I'm always discussing it and working with them through it because it's part of their lives and it's exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Something we didn't really have to deal with 10 years ago. No. Not at all. That's evolved over the over our, the course of our business and over the last decade. Uh, something else we've learned, goals, goal setting, and that goals are not just about the clock and about times and the process of getting to a goal is really what in the end is most memorable is what brings the most satisfaction is what brings the most character development really that whole process and we like to encourage our runners to focus on the process and while we always have goals and think goals are important to have because it keeps us on track on the process and motivated through the process you never know particularly speaking towards goals of, of race times if somebody's goal is a particular time or a Boston qualifying time or getting under four hours whatever you know in the marathon whatever a particular goal time that is so dependent on things that we can't control on race day so whether uh, if you maybe are not in the perfect perfect health on race day um, so many different you know, the size of the race how crowded it is so many things we can't control. So putting all your stock in having a goal be time-based isn't as is isn't as meaningful as having more process-oriented goals. And we talked about you know you could have a race where you don't hit your goal. That doesn't mean that the process didn't bring you to the point where you can hit that goal in another condition in another situation. So we've had runners who got to their goal race, did not hit their goal, and then we just took a step back, let them recover and retargeted something six weeks out. And then when they had that second opportunity, they were able to hit that goal. So their training got them there. They just needed the right opportunity. Or if you don't hit your goal at all for some reason, and often that reason is weather, it doesn't mean that 
the, the training was fruitless. It's cumulative. And that training cycle and that process will then benefit you as you tackle future goals. It all goes into the training bank. It's never a waste. Yeah, and setting goals that are other than time-based goals. So maybe it's, you know, running injury-free is a goal or getting back to running after having a baby, uh, running, getting out, and just running three days a week. Maybe that's your goal. So finding goals that are also shorter term that you can actually see the progress along the way. So yeah, goals are, are not just about the clock. You want to touch a little bit on our next our next one? We talked about the difference between female and male runners that we've observed yeah. over the years. So newsflash, uh, men and women are different and uh, their body composition is different and of course our hormones are different and we have coached women and men of all ages and uh, unfortunately a lot of scientific studies most of them for athletes are large ones are based on men and I don't know why that is there have been a lot of articles about this over the years on why um, studies are generally of runners and athletes are male athletes. We need more studies of female athletes because, or large studies, because the jury's still out and we don't have also a lot of um, high level female coaches. That's slowly changing. I know Shalane Flanagan is starting to coach and that's, she always paves the way and I know that will be a trickle down effect. But the bottom line is, is that a training plan for a man needs to be different than a training plan for a woman solely because women deal with cycles and hormones and those cycles impact running. And you know, for me personally, I didn't realize this at first. I thought maybe it was a fluke, but I started realizing with myself and my runners that my running is different depending on the time of the month or what I'm going through hormonally in a cycle. And that's not something that's talked about as much as it should be because there are ways to work around it in training and I think it's important that we recognize that and work with it rather than try to just push it away and keep going and thinking that um, it's it's going to just work itself out or that it's or a ignore, right, ignoring the differences. Yeah, yeah, it's not a weakness. It's just a fact. Yeah, definitely. Uh, another point that we brought up was that uh, progress is not always linear. So we get a lot of runners coming to us and they want to, you know, keep seeing, obviously they want to keep achieving, keep getting a new PR, hit a new, hit a new goal. And that's great. And if you take a step back and look at the, 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 the macro progress of somebody over years, they are linear, but within that there may be micro dips where you may have a, a period of time where you're not hitting new PRs. You're not, you're not, you can't hit a PR in every race. So, or you're injured, right. Or you're injured. There's some, some dips. So progress is not linear and it's important to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Where did I start? Where am I now? And, and, and see that progress. So you want to talk about type A runners? Yeah. So <laughs> this is something that, um, we're fortunate. We're, we, we aren't seeing it as much. I think people are just running a little smarter, but runners are generally type A and, and that's okay. We're type A people. We like, we like doing things and we like doing things well. But don't allow that A to make you an asshole because it's important that we recognize that this is our hobby. We are not paid to run. It is not the most important thing in our lives. And if we find at some point that we are not doing other things that are more important in our lives because of running, then it's time to take a step back, slow our roll, and see what's happening. So for example, if you're in the throes of training and you 
don't see any of your friends during your training, that's a problem. You should see your friends. Or if you're not spending time doing reading that you love to do, maybe reading relaxes you and you say, well, I'm training, I don't read while I'm training. Figure out a way to still read. Maybe you're not reading as much, but if that's something you love to do, don't take that away from yourself because you're training. Training isn't your job, it is your hobby. And while you can do your hobby so well and do it meaningfully, that doesn't mean it should be done at the expense of other things that you enjoy. And I'm not saying you can't do less of those things, but just make sure you're not ignoring those things that are important to you, especially your family, your friends, and your community, and your job. Yeah, and related, if running is making you an asshole, <laughs> and you are grumpy about it, and you are not enjoying the process, it's time to reevaluate. So is this becoming a burden, and oh my gosh, I have to wake up and do my run tomorrow, and I don't want to do it, and I'm grumpy about it? then you know what? Maybe it's time to change that goal. And we've had that with people who start training for a marathon and then they realize this is too much on my plate right now and it is making me an asshole. I'm grumpy. I don't want to, you know, I, this is not productive. We change the goal. It's okay to change the goal. So yes, if, if running is making you a type A asshole, it is time to reevaluate. Luckily, we do not deal with many runners like no. that. We wouldn't want to. So no. yeah. Uh, speaking of which, running... Speaking of assholes. Yeah, speaking of assholes. <laughs> speaking of running with good people, <laughs> speaking of running with good, supportive people, running friendships are, are hard to replicate and replace and translate off of the roads as well, transfer off of the off of the roads as well. Running, putting in that all that time together, running on the roads, going through challenges, pushing through hard hard situations, getting out and running in the in the challenging weather and not ideal weather. Those Having experiences. Conversations. Yes, those conversations. You open up. There are things that get said on long runs that do not leave the long runs. Really there's something about running and sharing that experience that creates a really special bond and that that extends beyond just those hours on the road and that's something we definitely learned I feel like when I was sitting in the room on Sunday I was thinking these are all runners slash clients become friends yes we've, we've been so fortunate to to have these relationships with people when you go through something that process of training of, of aiming for a goal of working hard of facing setbacks of coming through those setbacks of pushing through mental challenges and, and celebrating the successes, it creates a really special friendship. And we've been really lucky to have that with, with each other. Really, really, um, that's probably the best part of this whole experience is, is that relationship and, and that friendship, but also with our runners and runners that we train with and runners that we race with. It's, it's, a, it's a very unique and special, special friendship. So we're always grateful for that. And that was yeah. our last tip. Always be grateful yeah. for running. Always be grateful be grateful to have the opportunity that we get to go out and run even on the worst of days um, we think that the best best piece of advice to come out of Dina Castor's book is gratitude and we've really tried to implement implement that ourselves into our own running to recognize even on the hard days we get to go out and move our bodies and run and um, Lisa I'm so grateful for you I'm grateful that we've had the opportunity to spread our joy and knowledge of running to others and uh here's to another decade of another running decade. farther and faster and speaking of decades our guest on the podcast today has been running for decades and he is now going into his fifth decade 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s uh, 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s sixth decade 
of running the Boston Marathon. So we are really excited to have Phil Stewart on the podcast today. He is the race director for the Credit Union Cherry Blossom 10 Miler, which is a rite of passage here, springtime passage here in the DC area. And like I said, talking, speaking of decades and being able to do this for decades and having an impact on people in the community, he is a, a shining example. So we are really excited to welcome Phil to the podcast today. All right. Have a great week, Lisa. You too. Today, we are so excited to welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast, Phil Stewart. Phil Stewart is both a running and race management legend, both in the D.C. area as well as on the national and international stage. Phil has been the event director for the Credit Union Cherry Blossom 10-Mile Run, the premier springtime running event in Washington, D.C., since 1991. He is arguably one of the nation's experts on road race management and is the editor and publisher of the Road Race Management Newsletter, as well as the co-author of Organizing Running Events, The Complete Guide to Staging a Successful Road Race. Before he became a race director, Phil was, and still is, an accomplished distance runner. He has run the Boston Marathon 24 times, the first time in 1974, and in 1975, he finished in 2 qualifying him for the 1976 Olympic trials. He returned in 1977 to finish 15th overall. Phil has run Boston every decade of his life since those first races and will return this year to compete for the first time in his 70s as he turns 70 in just a few days on February 10th. Phil Stewart, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you so much for your time tonight. We are so excited to have you on, on the podcast. You are not only one of the area's best-known race directors, but you are also an extremely, extremely accomplished runner over now five decades, right, of running, or more than five decades probably of running, and a prolific Boston Marathon runner as well. So we are so excited to have you on our Boston Marathon podcast. I guess you're describing the right guy anyway. <laughs> uh, well, you come highly, highly recommended by Rachel Miller, a, a mutual friend of ours who adores you and loves working with you. So um, she says hello. Okay. Well, tell her, tell her hello back. So. <laughs> we will definitely do that. So tell us, let's start off with maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your your running career and and when when you started running and um when did when did you start running so i my father really had his heart set on me being a tennis player when i was in starting high school and he was a tennis player and so i think like a lot of other people actually i started off running for another sport um but then i somehow never got my backhand down and I had much more, I had quicker success in running than I was ever having on the tennis ladder. So, um, so that was, I guess it was uh, fall of my junior year in high school. And I actually grew up here in the Washington area, went to Woodrow Wilson high school in Northwest DC, uh, started running, uh, yeah, cross country fall of my fall of 11th grade. And, um, just found that I enjoyed it and had more talent at it than I did at tennis. And so kept going and then went on to continue to run in college. And I went to Carleton College in Minnesota, which was a Division three school. And um, anyway, and, and you know, it was, 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 was a good cross-country runner. It was not a, it was not a, a high-powered program. And I often say that the years I was in college, which were 68 to 72, we were 
probably spending more time protesting <laughs> the Vietnam War than we were. You know, I felt bad for our coach because he never knew whether we were going to go come down for practice or go occupy a building or something. Like that. <laughs> but, Love it. Um, but then, and then I came back to the Washington area after college, and um, you know, it's interesting because I think even here, uh, you know stories today about these, you know, kids who come out of college and you, you know, you've had so much structure in your college program and all of a sudden you are really entirely on your own. I mean, I mean, I think one of the best, just an aside, I think one of the best programs around is this run pro camp that the RCA does, which really provides guidance for, you know, outstanding college runners as they're trying to decide, you know, to make you know, if they're going to make you go of it as a, as a professional runner. And, you know, certainly when I came out of college, it was illegal to earn any money in a road race. So that I wasn't facing that, but I knew that I, you know, that I love to run and I was, I was, you know, hoping that I would find some like-minded people around and, and, you know, find some sort of structure that would replace uh, what I had in college. And, you know, certainly I found that in the, DC Roadrunners Club, which at that time was really the only running club in the in the Washington area, and started going to their road their running events. Um, and then also there was at the time there was the there was something called the Washington Sports Club, which was the precursor of what's today the Washington Running Club. And so there were and there were number of good runners who uh, belong to that club and so that gave me sort of the training structure and and I really through my 20s uh, advanced to being a, a better post-collegiate runner than I was a collegiate runner and you know I guess the highlight of my career was just sneaking under 220 with 219.58 in the 75 Boston Marathon with with a nice tailwind, but um, which qualified me for the 76 Olympic trials, and so those were. That's probably, a pretty. That's a pretty good highlight. That's a, that's a pretty big highlight. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I mean, I guess it was the phrase I always use is I was nationally competitive. So it was, uh, and it's interesting to think, you know, this year when there what over nearly 700 people who have qualified for the for the Olympic trials coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, I actually went back and looked. And of course there were no women's Olympic trials in 1972. Right. They wouldn't have their first ones until 84. But in 72, there were 79, there were 79 male qualifiers. Oh. For, I'm sorry, for the 76 trials. With yeah. the ones I ran in, there were 79 male qualifiers. So I guess I like to say I made the round of 79. Wow. <laughs> what do you think has happened just generally from your observation that has caused so many more people to qualify over the years? Is it that people have more information or are running smarter? Or is it that there's more groups to run with, which is motivating people to run better? Because when you run together, you run faster. What are your thoughts? That must be vapor flies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I do think that, um, I, I mean, obviously the whole running movement is much larger you know so if you you know somehow i you know i wonder if you went back and looked at it in terms of a you know a a on a percentage basis i mean there were just far fewer runners i mean keep keep in mind that you know the real 
you know, the real first running boom is a, cause you know, we, we call it of the seventies, which, you know, was being driven by Jim Fix's complete book of running, which came out, I think in 1976. And then, you know, Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers sort of popularizing it and the rise of the big city marathons. I mean, the, you know, the running movement really accelerated at that point. So, um, so, you know, I, I think there were just a lot more, you know, a lot more people doing it at all levels. And so, you know, again, I, you know, it'd be interesting to, an interesting exercise to take, you know, the 79 who qualified in 76 as a percentage of whatever. And it's probably not all that different than today. I mean, I do think that things got a little bit out of control with the, you know, particularly with the women's standards on the, on the, uh, you know, on the, on the upcoming trials, but huh. and I would guess that, um, that, you know, the USA track and field, the women's LDR committee will probably tighten those standards because those standards have been, um, they really are pretty much unchanged for probably the last, last, I don't know, 20 years or so. So when you say out of control, what do you mean by that? Just that probably exceeded their expectations and the numbers that will be going to Atlanta? I, I, I mean, I know, I, I know when Atlanta put in the bid that they did not anticipate nearly that they would they would have this number of uh, you know this number of qualifiers, and obviously, um, you know, each each qualifier is you know an additional cost to them, and the the the. Um, you know, and so I would, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure when they drew up their budget to figure out whether they were going to bid on the trials or not, they did not put in that they were going to be 700 people qualifying. And, you know, I think last time around the total was what in LA was probably, you know, between four and 500. So that's, that's a pretty, pretty significant difference. Absolutely. It's a great problem to have, but I'm not envious of Atlanta for that reason. But, it's, very, it's very similar yeah. to the Boston qualifying times with the same, same type of thing where so many people are qualifying that not everybody gets in and they've had to tighten, tighten the standards. So I think it's sort of, sort of across the board to, to some extent, but, uh, but I definitely see what you're saying. I wanted to go back and ask you, you mentioned that you thought you were a much better post-collegiate runner than collegiate runner. And obviously was evidenced by your performance that started it off at, at Boston that year. Um, what do you think? changed when you left college and and what did you do differently that you think helped you kind of go get a little bit farther and faster you know i i sometimes i'm not sure that i know the answer to that i mean i i because certainly there were you know there, there were close knit groups of runners you know i was surrounded by you know a, a close knit group of runners um uh, so I, I mean, yeah, I, that, I'm sort of scratching my head as to, as to, um, you know, for, for a reason for that. I mean, I, I certainly know that, you know, in college, the, when I was there anyway, the longest, I mean, they were just starting to run and then it was six miles instead of 10 K. I mean, I always, I, I always wanted to run the or was, was always going to be best at the longest distance that they would let you run and then in college our you know our cross-country races were four and five miles and again the six mile was as long as you could as long as you could run and so i think and and you know i when i was in high school i ran a 431 mile in high school and in four years of college 
I only got that down to 429. So I think you know I had I think I had kind of maxed out on the speed end uh, or you're, early on. Or you were and protesting. What I? Or you were protesting a little more, which is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it was. But I certainly enjoyed the distances more as they as 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 they got longer. And so I guess if I were to, you know, I, I guess I guess that's really what I would say that made the difference was the ability to you know to run longer and also just discovering that I enjoyed the, the, the longer distances, actually. I mean, during that same time, uh, in 1974, so this would have been just, you know, a couple of years out, after coming out of college, that I was third in the in the national 50-mile championship. So I, I ratcheted up the distances pretty quickly when I uh, when I got out of college so you're an um, endurance monster we call those endurance yeah, monsters that's right. yeah, not, not 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 much speed but I can I can keep those legs turning over for a while but yet so much speed because you ran a 219 and qualified for the Olympic trial so um well, but I, you know that's I, I don't you know I don't I don't think that's, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think that is, I don't think of that as speed, actually. I mean, I think of that really as more of an, I mean, you know, you know, relatively, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and it's interesting because there were, at some point within the last couple of years, I posted something on my Facebook page to just raise, asking the question if there were people, what, you know, I thought that I probably had one of the, smaller spreads between my one mile time. So I ran, you know, one mile in 429 and I ran 26 miles in 520 pace. So I basically had a 51 second spread between my mile time and my mm-hmm. marathon time. And I just posted something out there about, well, you know, what do, what do other people, you know, what are other people's spreads? And there were a few other people out there who had spreads comparable to mine but most most of most of the spreads were 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 wider than that got it when you were marathon training then tell us what did marathon training look like and even training for 50k as you mentioned what did it look like then compared to now how is it different well, it's and I was I was sort of uh, I was sort of an exception to the rule because certainly you know back then as you know with you know Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter I mean they were you know they were packing 100 and 130 140 miles a week and you know getting into you know you know obviously in order to do that kind of miles you have to be running twice a day almost almost every day if not every day and I never really pressed my training. Uh, much beyond 90, 90 miles a week, and and I never really got into doing multiple workouts a day, um, you know, or two workouts a day. What I did do, and I think this is sort of a mixed blessing, um, is that I, I I ran all almost all of my runs hard, mm-hmm. um, and so I was you know I was running. I mean, I would go out for an afternoon run and be running, you know, six minute pace, you know, day in and day out. And, you know, I think on one hand, I can't, you know, I, I think that produced some good results. On the other hand, 
I think it probably shortened my the the peak of my competitive career and and um I mean because really by the time I was when I was 27 I had I got a, a injury that really ended my my competitive my most competitive career so it was uh so so it was kind of a mixed blessing I mean I I certainly you know I I certainly don't have any regrets about my, you know, I think if that 219.58 had been a 220.01 that I might have had a regret, but I feel like I, you know, I, it was interesting because, I, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years later, I ran Boston one year and I ran three hours flat to the second. And wow. I thought, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, I got my two seconds when I needed them. So I, <laughs> I didn't, you didn't kick yourself didn't, about that one. I didn't, I didn't kick myself about that one. But, still impressive um, to be 15 years later running three hours. So that's, that's, that's still impressive. So we understand you've now incorporated a lot of cross training into your, into your training just um, because of injuries, because of needing, needing to mix it up. Talk to us a little bit about that, how you, how you train now and, and how cross training has helped you to, I mean, cause you really do still have, you have a lot of longevity in your career. You are still running, you're, you're running Boston this year, which is their first time as a, in the 70 age group, which is again, phenomenal. So happy birthday, by the way, yeah. I understand you're turning <laughs> 70 this week. Happy early birthday. <laughs> So right, how, how, how do you think cross-training has helped helped with that and helped you yeah, still I mean, be able to yeah, run? I, I think it's the obvious that you're, you know, that you're just not, you're just not taking, your legs aren't taking the same type of pounding and, you know, you're still getting the aerobic benefits. And, you know, obviously for me, it's taken the form of, taken the form of biking and spinning. Um, and so, you know, my routine, you know, my routine for the last 10 years really probably has been, you know, only running three days a week and either, and then either biking or spinning, um, on the other, on the other four days. Um, and, you know, and the bike rides are, you know, I mean, the bike rides are, are generally on the weekend. I'll get out and do, you know, sort of a 50 mile bike ride is probably, I try and get one of those in every weekend. A lot of times, particularly when the weather's colder, I'm just doing a, you know, I'm doing a spin class, a spin class in the morning, but, um, you know, I, 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 you know, over, over the last five or six years, you know, I've probably averaged, um, I don't know, you know, 5,000 miles, uh, a year on the bike and more like 1,500 to 2,000 miles running. Um, so it really is a lot more biking. Last year was even more dramatic because I had an injury, and then also last fall I I did a, a two week bike trip cycling through the Pyrenees. Actually, so last year my totals were, you know, more like a thousand miles running and and sixty five hundred miles cycling. So it's uh, but but you know again I think you know particularly as you get older and you've got a lot of years and a lot of cumulative miles on your legs that the you know, they just can't take the pounding that they, that they used to be able to take. But I think that's a great point that you just made that you have a lot of cumulative miles on your legs. So even though your mileage is lower, you still have that muscle memory and you're able to execute a marathon. I think partially because of all of those miles and all of that cumulative experience, tell us what, what a typical week look like where you're incorporating your cycling and your running together. What's a, a schedule for you look like? Well, usually, usually my running days are Tuesday and Thursday, and 
whatever day on the weekend the weather looks better. I mean, usually I decide whether, you know, the, whether I'm going to run or bike long depends on, so it can either be Saturday or Sunday, um, depending on the weather. Um, and, but, I mean, when I've been leading up to the marathons, obviously the, you know, the long runs will increase, you know, you know, up through, you know, starting a cycle, you know, 15, 16 on up to 22, 23 miles for the long run. So I am getting the long runs in. Um, and then, then also, and I guess, I guess the last cycle I might have missed this, but usually I try and do something which I, I just barely use the word speed anymore, but it's, you know, I guess maybe I, maybe I'll call it a, a tempo run where I'll go down on the towpath and I'll run. You know, I'll, I'll run two minutes hard over two minutes easy, and then I'll do four over two and six over two and, you know, something like that. So something just to get my legs, my legs moving a little bit faster. So that's, that's usually the, and then, the, you know, the spin classes are, I, I usually try and do about 70 minutes if I do a spin class. And, you know, again, the bike rides are, are, you know, the standard weekend ride would be 50 miles. And then a few times, each fall and spring, I'll do a, I mean, I've entered some century bike rides and then usually I have a, I have a couple of long rides. So I, I usually a couple times a year, I'll try and ride out to Sugarloaf and back, which is 85 miles or another one where I go out to Leesburg on the WNOD and then cross over White's Ferry and come back through Montgomery County. So some of the longer rides, but <clears throat> that's basically what it is. And now that we're heading into Boston Marathon training, season and because you've run already 24 Boston marathons tell our listeners what are some things that you in particular do to prepare for Boston um, now and earlier when you weren't cycling as much that you think are very important to prepare for the race um, I mean you know I, I, I mean I think I, I think what I do is you know pretty standard you know, pretty standard marathon preparation. I mean, you know, obviously the important elements are the, you know, are the long runs. And, and so, you know, working that up and working those up and, and, um, and, it, you know, and, and trying to throw a little bit of speed work in. So I think pretty much that's, you know, that's, that's the cycle that I try and go through. Do, do any of your, other than obviously your, your first Boston, when you finished sub 220 and qualified for the Olympic no, no, trials, that actually, was my, but, that actually was my second. Oh, your second run. Right. Okay. That was your second yeah, one, but still one, one of yeah, your first. Minute. Yeah. Right. Other than that, do any particularly stand out in your mind? Any, any memories of Boston? Well, uh, I, I guess there, there, there are three that come immediately to mind. Um, the first one was, uh, I mean, three in addition to the to the three others besides the the, the, the two nineteen um, in seventy seven. It was warm in seventy seven, and when I ran two nineteen, I actually came in twenty second. Um, in seventy seven, it was warm, and I ran two twenty two flat, and but I came in fifteenth. So that yeah. was actually that was actually my highest finish. Um, and what the sensation that I had in that is that because it was a hot year and everybody was spread out, I, I, I came, came up Burford street and I took the, and then those days it finished at the Prudential center instead of the Hancock building. And so you'd take that left onto Boylston and you'd have maybe 200 yards huh. or two or 300 yards That's to go true. to the finish line. 
And I took that left-hand turn, and I was, the runner in front of me was 45 seconds ahead, and the runner behind me was about 30 seconds behind me. So I had that whole straightaway to, to myself, and it was it was as close. I mean, I, you know, for, you know, I can imagine what it would feel like to win the race. That's I mean, there so I was, you know, there, that is so nice. I was the I was the only runner on the entire roadway. Everybody was cheering for me, and mm. and and there was, and you know, one thing I was always glad that I was able to do is that when I realized that was happening, I actually said, you know, stop competing for this last two hundred yards, and maybe I would have run two. 50, 221, you know, 55 <laughs> or something. But but I, I savored that moment as I was running down there and I was absolutely the only person approaching the finish line of the Boston Marathon. So that was that was that was uh, pretty pretty spectacular. Um, and then of course, you know, the other one that comes to mind is the you know, it's the year of bombing. Um, and that year I was actually running with running with Ben Beach, uh, mm-hmm. you know the you know, tell our our listeners that Ben Beach has the longest consecutive running streak at the Boston Marathon. So yes, we actually, we remember that year that when, when he was running also and got a, if you were running with him, we're guessing you didn't make it to the finish line and got the dispensation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we came up heartbreak hill and there was just a wall of, you know, volunteers sort of locked arms across the, across the roadway and you know we had to stop now ben you know had, of course had a streak on the line and so they were actually encouraging people to you know go to a high school near some you know shelter nearby and they were going to bus us back but they actually would let you continue i mean you couldn't run them the streets were closed but they couldn't keep us off the sidewalk so ben was determined that he was going to get as close to the finish line as he could and so you know we pretty much walked you know walked walked our way all the way in and of course then the you know, BAA was said that they would, you know, keep the streaks intact of anybody who was, you know, past the halfway mark in a certain amount of time. So Ben, ben got to keep his streak intact. Yeah. But, you know, obviously that was a hugely, hugely emotional, emotional uh, time and, and, you know, event to be involved with. So That must have been a, a especially hard for you because you, and we'll get to this next, you are a race director. So we would imagine that when this was happening and you were with Ben Beach um, heading toward the finish line, knowing what had transpired, but not sure what to expect. Um, I'm sure as a race director, that was a, a tough moment because you probably understood more than anyone what, what Dave the Gilray was going through. Well, you know, I think in some, in some ways, in, in some ways you didn't because it was such new territory. You know, it was something that, Nobody, you know, nobody, you know, I don't think any race director had ever even conceived of, uh, you know, there was, you know, there was maybe, you know, I, I think race directors just felt and, you know, and I, and I think that security people would say, you know, there's, if a terrorist was going to, uh, you know, attack, a, a, you know, even a sporting event, there were so many that were bigger, you know, uh, that, you know, and, you know, they you know, they're going to go after the Super Bowl or they go after something. I mean, that running events simply weren't high enough profile to really have this be something that race directors were going to lose a lot of sleep over. But, you know, and obviously, and, you know, I think, in, you know, in retrospect, and, you know, what turned out to be the case of Boston is, you know, the rise of the, you know, lone wolf terrorists or whatever, you know, who will, you know, pick a smaller event and they're not, you know, they're, they're not part of the, 
you know, worldwide organized group or whatever. They're kind of operating on their own and the, you know, affiliations are loose. So it was, it was, um, uh, you know, but, you know, certainly everything that they did and the, you know, I, I think the most, you know, phenomenal thing and, and, you know, thing that must have been just, yeah, the most difficult to comprehend is how in, you know, a period of minutes, their medical operation went from treating running injuries to, you know, treating war casualties. Um, and, you know, and the, the you know, the, the fact that they were able to pull that off as remarkably as they did is, is, is you know, again, almost incomprehensible. Yeah, absolutely. Has what happened in Boston, has that affected how you now as a race director of Cherry Boston, has that changed or, you know, you have your own race management um, business, but has that affected you, what you do as a race director now with your races? I mean, yeah, no, I mean, it's obviously touched every, touched every race director, you know, in the country and, and, you know, certainly, you know, certainly for us, you know, on the sudden, you know, we're learning about things, you know, doing tabletop exercises with law enforcement personnel and setting up unified command centers and, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, the, I mean, running, you know, and, and we all deal with this and, you know, one of the big challenges is, you know, I mean, a running event is just a huge wide open, uh, you know, wide open happening. So, you know, you're, you know, how do you, you know, balance what you need to do as far as security of the event goes without, you know, sort of hugely, um, you know, hugely altering the participant experience. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a very, very tough balance. And, you know, and the wide open venues, uh, make it, make it a real security challenge. And, you know, so, you know, obviously there are a lot of things, you know, you see a lot of the, you know, the, the heavy trucks now that they, you know, put at the intersections to make sure that cars can't speed into speed onto the race course. And, and, you know, and I suspect that there are probably lots of things going on on a security level that we don't even know about that are, you know, being handled by law enforcement personnel and, you know, on sort of a need to know basis. Um, and, but, you know, certainly, certainly it is much more present in our, in our consciousness about, uh, you know, what, what, what needs to be done. Well, we think it's so impressive what you do as the race director for Cherry Blossom with all of those challenges, because of course, obviously the race takes place in Washington, D.C., where you're dealing with not only local law enforcement, but also federal law enforcement. And it, there's a lot of moving parts to that race that are unique to other races. So talk to our listeners, especially those who don't live in the D.C. area, and tell us about some of the unique characteristics and challenges to Cherry Blossom. Well, sometimes I say that... Um you know, with our staging the event on the, you know, on the Washington Monument grounds that, you know, we are probably staging on, I don't think anybody would argue with my saying, probably one of the top 10 most recognizable pieces of real estate in the world. For sure. Um, and that, <laughs> you know, and that carries a, that carries a, a you know, a huge responsibility and, and, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes, 
you know, we can get frustrated with the, you know, with the National Park Service about restrictions, you know, and they restrict the number of runners that we can have and they restrict, you know, they're very concerned about how much commercial presence they're going to allow on National Park Service land. And so there are a lot of regulations about the, you know, about the, you know, how big our sponsor logos can be on our signs and, you know, and then, you know, they, they also are concerned. There are a lot of regulations about what we can and can't do on the Washington Monument grounds and, you know, and the, the whole new set of regulations about what we have to do to preserve the turf. In fact, you know, people are starting to notice that one of the newer ones is that we have to flip now our staging area between the 17th Street side of the Monument grounds and the 15th, stri- 15th mm-hmm. Street side because they're, you know, they want to try and keep the, the grass um, you know, lush on the Monument grounds. So now they they are rehabbing half of the grounds every year. So mm. that's why we do this flip flop back and forth, oh. back, back and forth between the 15th Street side and 17th Street side. So, but you know, in the moments where where you know I might be frustrated at you know everything we have to do to comply, that's when I step back and remind myself, oh yeah, you know, where are we having this? Where, you know, where are we staging this race? And it's, you know, again, and one of the most recognized venues of the year and also, um, you know, right in the heart of cherry blossom season, which is, you know, the biggest tourist season of the year. And, you know, particularly those years when the blossoms are out and, the you know, and the Park Service tells us, well, you know, you have to clear the course by, you know, by 1020 and, you know, and, and you know, because they have, you know, 200,000 tourists who want to come down and see the blossoms, you know, the families who've, you know, come from California, you know, bringing their two kids and, you know, this is the family trip of a lifetime. And, you know, so they're trying to balance the needs of, you know, of our 15,000 runners with the tourists who are in town. And it's, you know, it's, it's a tough job. And so, um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and so we're just in such a high visibility venue that, you know, that there's got to be some balancing that goes on. And what's so interesting is not only do you balance the challenge of all the logistics you just discussed by staging a race at the Washington Monument, but also the Cherry Blossom race is is a highly competitive race. You've managed to attract year after year top athletes from around the world for this 10-mile race. And a lot of race directors look at you with envy and say, how do they do that? How did this race become that? So what what was your secret that caused the cherry blossom race to be this um, sort of rite of spring that attracts these elite runners from around the world? What is it? Well, I mean, I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, you know, obviously the race, you know, the race has a long history. I mean, we're we're two years shy of celebrating our 50th running, which will be in 2022. Um, but I, and, and, you know, so the race really started a couple of years. So the first year was 1973. So it really started a couple of years before the, you know, the, the, the popular, the first running boom started. And, you know, back then, you know, the small number of runners who they were and, you know, the first, so the first year, the first year of the race was held, there were 141 starters, um, but, you know, almost all those runners were, um, you know, were more competitive runners. In fact, you know, one of the 
primary reasons why the 10-mile distance was selected was that, you know, a lot of runners then used it as a last tune-up um, for before Boston. So uh-huh. that's, you know, and so, um, you know, and so it's, it, it, you know, there was sort of a more competitive, you know, more competitive. And I use the word competitive, I mean, you know, relatively competitive, um, you know, for, you know, your, your, you know, age, age division or whatever. So, um, but it, it sort of came out of that tradition, um, you know, and I think, you know, as running exploded in the, you know, in the late seventies and early eighties, and then again in the nineties when, you know, what they call the second running boom, which was really the, you know, when, you know, running and charity fundraising became linked. I mean, those, you know, in, in some ways they were, the charity events were appealing to a different audience, but, you know, we had already established our, our, our tradition as being a more competitive, a race for more competitive runners. And we, you know, stuck to that. And then, you know, so obviously in the 1980s when, you know, runners could first earn prize money, uh, you know, they relaxed the amateur rules so that runners could earn prize money at races. That was, you know, completely consistent with, you know, what our, you know, with the, with the history of our race. So, um, when that first happened, we, you know, we, we, we jumped on board with the, you know, the first set of races around the country that were offering over the table prize money. And so it's, it's, and I do think even, you know, even down to this day, and I think one thing that we take pride in is that, um, you know, it is what separates our our race apart from, you know, from from the other races. I mean, you know, the Marine Corps Marathon. You know, in some ways, they've taken exactly the opposite yes. route and by people's calling race. themselves a people's marathon. You know, which which I have to admit, I always I always it always gets to me a little bit because I don't like the notion that you can't be both that you have to pick one or the other that you're. You know, we like to think that we can, you know, produce an exciting sporting event and, you know, have runners who are going after world records and like that. But that doesn't preclude our offering, you know, a, a great running experience for people who are, are, you know, who are, you know, hoping to make the two hour and 20 minute cutoff. So it's, uh, but anyway, so, but it's, so I, I, you know, it just has always been an element. And, you know, when, the, I mean, the race is actually, owned by a lot of people think i own the race and that's that's not that's not the case so i'm i'm the i'm the uh steward is the steward of the race (laughs) no pun intended (laughs) yes that's right um and and um so so the so the race is actually its own non-profit 501c3 corporation and there's a board of directors and like that um and you know in our statement of purposes you know one of one of our statement of purposes is to, you know, foster competitive opportunities for, for, you know, national and, and, and world-class runners. So it's a, it's, it's written right in there to our mission statement. That's great. Well, are, are you planning any special celebrations you can share with us for 2022? Well, you know, it, it's I'm just, I mean, we're just starting to work on that at this point. And, you know, it, it, after this year's race, you know, it'll be a two-year, you know, a two-year lead-up project, but we're really going to, you know, so in a way, starting right after this year's race, we're going to be planning both the 2021 and the 2022 events. And, and um, so, so you know, that's when we'll start, 
you know, and, and I've been spending some time. I went down uh, the uh, Peachtree Road Race mm-hmm. celebrated its 50th anniversary or its 50th running last uh, last July, and so I went down to see. And they did a lot of innovative things down there, and I'm sure there'll be a you know a a, a you know a, a melding of the historical traditions of the race, and uh, you know probably a lot of a lot of you know, fun other fun things that we've done. I mean, one thing that we've done in the on the pa- in the past um, five year anniversaries is that we do the we we offer special mugs for all of the runners who beat the winning times from the first year the race was held. Yeah, we have those from five years ago or three years. Oh, do really? okay. We do those. Uh, uh, I would have I would have run this won this race. Won this and, race yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, we. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, I'm, uh, you know, we'll we'll be putting our thinking caps on. I'm sure coming up with some things like that, and there'll you know probably be some you know, graphic overhauls of the race and stuff like that. So anyway, That's great. stay tuned. I'm not going to tip my hat too much. No, we don't. We, we won't. But we <laughs> both, we both cherish our mugs that um have, that say we would have won the race and beat Catherine Switzer in 1973. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for, for talking to us and providing some insight into the evolution of running and marathon running and race directing. We really uh, appreciate you sharing all of your institutional knowledge. And both of us are looking forward to being at Cherry Blossom this year before we go to Boston and looking forward to hearing how you do in Boston. You're going back to Boston this year. So um, your first, right? So this is now you've run in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and this will be your first year running in your 70s, correct? There's got to be a record. Yeah. There's there's got to be well, some sort of award for you for this streak. Well, yeah, that, and there's probably not a, a ton of people doing that anyway. But uh, no, no, it's been. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have um, to, to to have been able to assemble all of that. So, okay. and I do want to just stop. By, one more comment I want to make that that just I really want to emphasize that the the you know that the the organizing committee, you know, and, and, you know, Rachel's been on our, Rachel Miller's been on our yeah. committee for golly, I don't know, probably 30 years, but this, you know, some, you know, so often the accolades are, you know, more are directed at me and, and they are just an astonishing, hardworking group of people. And, and, uh, you know, it's just, I, I owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to all the time and, you know, you know, virtually all of them volunteers. I mean, it's just a, a staggering commitment. And um, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for uh, just the, the race couldn't happen without them. Yeah, you do have a great team. And, and it's evident yeah. to racers and runners that come in to run the race of how well it's run and how how happy everyone is that's volunteering and how excited they all are about, about putting on this race. So that's evident. And it's a testament to you because they continue to volunteer for you year after year. So clearly your leadership is what drives them. So uh, they do it. They do it for the guaranteed entry. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's <laughs> that, doesn't that's hurt. Hurt. that doesn't hurt. But Well, thank you so much, Phil. We really appreciate your time and we'll hopefully see you in Boston as well. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks. Good yeah. luck with your training. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. You too. Thanks. All right.